0: Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There is Nothing to Fear, by Day. read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 26. Neck Deep in Fear. When Hermione woke the next morning, her bones ached. The tokens had failed to grow as she expected, and the pot of sap was disappointingly small. Further miseries mounted as their meager collection of sap dwindled further through the boiling process. When Hermione decided that enough was enough and tried what little was left, it was acidic and bitter, with only a hint of sweetness. What did I do wrong? I wasn't supposed to boil it down to a single drop, was I? Dmitri did not speak immediately. "'I do not know,' he said after a few moments. It was the first time he had spoken that whole morning, after instructing Hermione on syrup-making the night before, and at his words she felt a stab of fear through her gut. No, not his words, his voice. That wasn't Dmitri. That was somebody else, very much not Dmitri, who was trying to make an impression of his voice.' Hermione snapped her gaze back to the fire, hoping that it bespoke frustration more than worry. What do you mean you don't know? You're the one who suggested that we make the syrup in the first place? She had to keep up the conversation, pretend that she didn't know anything. If this. this false Dimitri was trying to impersonate the real one, then he must have thought it possible to fool her. There was a pause. And Hermione imagined Dmitri shrugging his shoulders, or the false Dmitri drawing his wand. I have just heard of these things. I have not done them. He said, and Hermione tried not to sigh with relief. Perhaps forgot a step, or maybe three just as a bad syrup. That tree in particular, or birches in general. I do not know. Hermione supposed she was just lucky that she hadn't poisoned herself. If this was the most that Dmitri knew or whoever it was that she was talking with. "'I'm going to collect more pine needles. "'Do you want some tea as well?' "'Much so, please.' Hermione knew where the false Dimitri was standing, unless he was using a ventriloquy charm, and if he was, then there were a few ways to determine his position. The human-presence-revealing charm wasn't that complicated, so she could probably manage to cast it. Hermione certainly couldn't cast it without being noticed, but she could say she heard a strange noise and thought that there might have been someone else, but it wouldn't tell her exactly where he was. The dowsing charm might work, except that it was poorly suited for locating either living flesh or enchantments. In the worst case, Hermione could pretend to accidentally bump into him, but she would prefer to find a better alternative.' By the time that Hermione returned and began to brew their tea, the makings of a decent plan began to mow in her brain. As soon as they had drunk their pine-needle tea, Hermione proposed that they go to the river in order to fish. Presumably because Hermione had done so much spell work already, and the plan was that she would continue to cast more throughout the day, she hardly broached the subject before Dmitri agreed to summon fish on her behalf. Hermione pretended to keep her focus on the river, but really she was focused on the patch of air that he was incanting from. With every mutterance of Accio, Hermione's resolve hardened and her courage burned a little brighter until she interrupted him, mid-incantation, with the arm locker curse. The false Dimitri exclaimed in wordless surprise, and then, before he could do anything more, Hermione cast a hover charm. It was probably the most difficult hover charm that Hermione had ever cast, but when his next words came from a position a few inches higher than before, Hermione, what are you doing? I, I, the, the heights, I do not like them. I know that you aren't really to Tree, she said, continuing to watch the river. She was doubtless being observed through the eye of Providence, and it wouldn't do for anyone to wonder why she was so interested in a patch of nothing in the air. Auntie, nonsense! Flavicle! Hermione twitched her wand a little. And by the false Dmitri's panicked squeal, it was clear that she had successfully jostled him in the air. Who are you really? I am Dmitri. She spared a glance to where the false Dmitri floated, just to make sure that no errant limbs had revealed themselves from beneath his invisibility cloak. Dmitri doesn't sound like that. Your voice is too high. That is because you have levitated me. You know what I mean. It is, how you say, reverse puberty. I don't buy it. She twitched her wand a little, and the false Dmitri yelped, What's going on? I, it is uh, difficult to explain. I get good grades, try me. I am not Dmitri Polyakov, he admitted. The voice was not altogether dissimilar from Dmitri. The accent was a little similar for one, but there was no longer any pretending that this was a different person. "'I am still the one that you have known this whole time, however. "'Ask me whatever question you would like, and I will verify it.' "'His English was rather better, too. "'What is the first text that I began to memorize for occlumency?' "'Something about the Triwizard Tournament. "'Don't ask me to spell it.' "'It wasn't a terrible question, but anyone who might have replaced Dimitri "'could have plucked that knowledge out of his head. "'But they couldn't have taken all of his memories, not under these circumstances.' "'So Hermione followed it up with a question that might make him guess. "'What did you say to me when we met at the Chapel Grove?' "'Nothing,' Dmitry said after a moment's hesitation. "'Have we ever been to the Grove together? I do not think so.' "'Hermione didn't bother to answer that, "'let him think she was unconvinced for all she cared. "'What did you do with the real Dmitry Polyakov? "'He's at Durmstrang, having the easiest academic year of his life "'and probably improving my test scores without even needing to study.' "'Why? Please cast the muffling charm again to make sure it is secure. Hermione pursed her lips. "'I don't think that I can let go of this charm while I do that. "'You'll just have to trust that nobody is eavesdropping. "'Besides, if I cast it wrong before, then I'll probably just mess it up again.' "'Dimitri seemed to accept that reasoning. "'You are not the only one who wanted to visit Britain, "'but unlike you, it might have been dangerous for me. "'Unlike you, I didn't steal important artifacts from a foreign government after I arrived.' Hermione said, frowning. Neither did you have an invisibility cloak, said Faust Dimitri. Well, who are you, really? Three rules of occlumency, I taught you. But there is also a zeroth rule. If there is something which you must keep safe from legitimacy, then do not know that thing. Even after everything that you've told me, she said irritatedly, you're going to try to keep your name secret? There are many Durmstrang students whose place Dmitri might have taken. What am I supposed to call you? Why not Dmitri as before? It was a little hard not to throw her hands into the air in exasperation. Because you want him. I am the only Dmitri Polyakov that you have known. For what it is worth I am Dmitri. Call the other one real Dmitri if you'd like. She let him hang in the air for a few minutes ignoring his comments as she puzzled over what to do, weighing her options and considering what she might have overlooked. She could stun him and leave him there, maybe with a few charms to ward away predators, and figure out what to do with him after she had found Victor and Fleur. Or she could pull away his invisibility cloak right now and let the judges handle him. Though she felt terribly certain that Dementors might be involved if Riddle had his way, and Dmitri hadn't done anything, at least that she knew of, to deserve that— Finally, without a word, Hermione lowered him to the ground. "'Tuck,' Dimitri said, and she could hear the rustle of fabric as he presumably dusted himself off. Hermione collected their fish in the same cloth that she had transfigured the previous day. One was the size of her hand, but most of the rest were smaller, fingerlings, she wanted to say, but Hermione wasn't sure whether that was a real fish term. When they returned to camp— Hermione noted miserably that the tokens still hadn't sprouted. Either she had entirely the wrong idea about what to do with them, or she needed to exercise more patience. The former, unfortunately, seemed more likely. Hermione filled a pot with wand water, then set a fire underneath. While waiting for the water to come to a boil, she shredded more cambium and diced a dozen crab apples that she and Dimitri had spotted in the morning light, then threw it all into the pot as soon as it began to burble. Her next task was to butcher the fish, which was considerably more difficult, and after her first attempt removed as much meat as scales, Hermione settled for carefully splitting the first lengthwise, removing the organs, and throwing the rest, scales at all, into the boiling pot. Under other circumstances the meal would have been terrible, but this morning it was a feast. Never mind how tart the apples were, or how the scaly little fish felt as though she were chewing fingernails, the cambium at least was sweet. At the we eat the mostly simple fare like this," Dimitri said. His accent, even now, sounded Scandinavian. Maybe he was telling the truth about being a Dermstrang student. Breakfast is usually a porridge, some rye toast, and salted butter. On holidays, we get cinnamon or vanilla. Not long after finishing breakfast, they came across hoofed tracks in the earth, Thesrail tracks, perhaps, or unicorns, maybe bona fide horses, for all she knew. But there was one thing they couldn't be. There used to be centaurs here. Did you know that? Hermione said. Fleur had mentioned it a few months earlier. It was the Forbidden Forest because they forbade it once upon a time. When Hogwarts was established, that custom was respected and entreated, but even as the relationship between Hogwarts and the centaurs shifted, the forest remained forbidden. It had become a refuge for things which the centaurs had protected, or at least tolerated. What happened to them? Riddle happened. Centaur and Murfolk have very strong opinions about dark creatures. They've always rejected classification as beings on the grounds that they didn't want to share a category with the likes of hags and vampires. Once upon a time Hermione could have sympathized very strongly with that position, but she felt less sure now. Riddle was hardly going to let them cause trouble at Hogwarts, so at the first sign of discontent he deported them to the Cairngorns. The Ministry makes it out to be this big, magnanimous gesture, pushing a land appropriation bill through Parliament to give the centaurs a hundred times as much space as they had here, but a thousand square miles of hills and moorland is hardly worth one inch of the Forbidden Forest, the way the centaurs feel about it. According to what Hermione had read in Lambs and Lions, Britain in the New Era, the Cairngoins project had been an accomplishment in every way. No public roads went through the Cairngorms, and if there were deaths and disappearances, that only made sense. People had died there even before the British government embarked on its rewilding initiative. Five muggle children and an adult had died in 1971, and that was before bears and wolves and bison had been introduced. The mist was just as thick as it had been the day before, but their trail of white stones and Hermione's slate map kept them from getting lost, and they proceeded at a decent pace. It wasn't long before Hermione and Dimitri found that their worries from the day before had been warranted. There it was, the goddamned basilisk itself, great and green, baleful and blindfolded, wrapped around an ancient oak tree like the serpent of the Argonauts, and from one branch, like a golden fleece, there hung a golden key. The important thing was that the key and the basilisk were not entwined. Perhaps they could lure it away or put it to sleep, or— No, Hermione said— as much to herself as to Dmitri, and she walked away. Goddamned basilisk. Even with the blindfold wrapped around its face, Hermione had no interest in taking another step closer. She was going to get another key, but not that way. Forget about Fleur disemboweling Dmitri. Fleur might disembowel Hermione if she found out that they had done something as foolish as challenge a basilisk. And they broke for lunch about half an hour later. Dimitri caught more fish, after he confirmed that there would be no further levitated interrogations, and Hermione boiled them up in a pot along with more cambium. Some ugly-looking pitted mushrooms that Dimitri was more than just beautiful sure were safe, and good King Henry. It was weird and crunchy, and a tiny fishbone got stuck in her teeth. But even so, the stew was remarkably good, if for no other reason than that it was all she had. The only real problem was that there wasn't as much of it as she'd like and Hermione thought back with longing to the pie that the ectopodes had stolen and which they had better damn well enjoyed. The Eye of Providence winked out of sight as it passed behind a tree, and Hermione wondered again how her activities looked to whoever was watching at this point. Was Griffiths announcing, from sunrise to sunset, what if Hermione or one of the others did something interesting at night? Did Griffiths ever get to go to sleep, or was she alternating shifts with someone else? "'Riddle, or somebody dressed like Riddle, was probably there all day and all night, "'but Madame Maxime and the other judges presumably had better things to do, "'much better things, considering that two of them worked for their respective governments.' "'Victor told me a little about one of the new judges,' Hermione said as she picked "'at her fishbones. "'Kaloyan something.' "'Kaloyan Slanina,' said Dmitri. "'He administrates one of the Bulgarian provinces, I think. "'Victor hates him.' but I'm sure you'll know that already if he said anything at all. He did, Hermione agreed. It's just that I was wondering why Karkaroff selected him. It almost seems like everything was about Russia, choosing Matvago of all people to come here, and then each of his judges. Riedel selected judges from as far away as China and the New World, and Madame Maxime too, but I can't help but notice that each of Kokarov's judges is from a country that is very close to Russia. It is not just that, either.' The judges that he picked all have certain opinions about the muggles or non-humans or the, uh, Grindelwald as well, Dimitri said. Grindelwald? What does he have to do about it? And there are some people who think that Riddle is about i am not sure how to say it in english grindelwaldism or new Gellert Grindelwald thought. Neo-Grindelwaldism, Hermione said, but Riddle doesn't want to break the statute of secrecy. "'And yet Riddle deals too much with muggles. "'What you're telling me earlier about, I don't remember, "'the impalement or something?' Parliament, "'Right. "'Muggle business. "'Maybe one or two things like that every now and then "'is a necessary evil, but I mean Riddle might as well "'be in the Parliament himself. "'And for some people that's a good thing,' Demetri added. "'They say that it's for the greater good, "'that maybe it's bad to break the statute "'like Grindelwald wanted to do.' but riddle is showing the world a different way to protect the Muggles. Hermione frowned. She remembered reading some of that talk coming from the Wizarding Roman Republic, come to think of it. What do you think about it? I don't really know, Dmitri admitted. We don't talk much about Legwindovism at Darmstreng, not in an important way. Rector Kharkarov, he punishes he punished us with horrible things, night detention without a wand, and tja, I don't want to think about it. Dmitri sighed. But Grindelwald is Durmstrang's greatest shame and greatest fear. Karkaroff may hate Russia, but I'm sure he worried about Britain just as much. Karkaroff is not the only one that is making political choices, either. Leichenberg writes textbooks, but my father says that he has influence in the government as well— "'I don't know anything about the Fang or Rappaport, "'but I'm sure that Riddle had his reasons for them. "'I don't know about the Far Garden either, "'but Rappaport is very important in her government. "'The Atlanticans have two consuls in their government, "'each with full veto power over anything that the Senate puts out, "'and a lot of other privileges as well. "'It doesn't make any sense, really. "'Blogana and Slanina are just somewhere in the middle of their governments, aren't they, "'but Rappaport's importance is miles ahead of theirs.' Why did she take days out of her schedule to watch a European tournament? "'She is very interested in the riddle in Britain,' Hermione swallowed. "'Right. I don't like it.' "'This is what it had always been about, wasn't it? Hermione's part in the tournament and her very existence in Britain had been a coup, so to speak, but all of that seemed to be a play for the masses at home.' Hermione doubted that the whole tournament was staged just on the off chance that she'd take the bait and head home, head to Britain anyway. It was about entering the world stage and making friends. Germany, China, and now the Atlantic Commonwealth. But not just them, either. She'd seen Riddle playing nice with the Russians after Mertvago's funeral. Politics again, she was sure of it. He had built a coalition in Britain once, he was doing it again. There was a little to clean up after their meal, and then Hermione and Dmitri resumed their walk along the riverside, and the same pattern of action that they had carried out this far. Every few minutes they stopped, so Hermione could update her map, and sheer Dmitri could deposit another white stone to keep them from retracing their steps without knowing it, and off they went again. Maybe an hour later, a rough, metallic sound drew Hermione's attention across the river, deep into the mist, yet somehow clearly visible for all that it should have been obscured from her sight, stood a knight in black plate armor, surrounded on all sides by tall trees. Metal wings stretched from either side of the helmet like feathered ears, and the knight held a weapon in either hand, a star-headed cudgel in one, a broad hatchet in the other. His stance seemed to stiffen as she watched him and the slit of his helmet focused on her. From the knight's neck hung a key, shining gold against a black that approached the consumptive darkness of the tomblerone, and Hermione could not help but think a Death Eater's robes. No. Hermione? Dimitri whispered, though the knight stood well on the other side of the river. There were more than three tokens in the second task, weren't there? So there have to be more than three keys, too, Hermione reasoned. "'I liked the Octopodes. I really liked them. That is not how I remember it. "'That's fair,' Hermione allowed. "'But I like them more now that I've seen some of the alternatives. "'I'd take Octopodes all day rather than what we've seen since then. "'They were probably Madame Maxime's contribution. "'Let's find another challenge that came from Madame Maxime. "'I would even take a challenge from Karkaroff, "'but this one has Riddle's signature all over it, and I'm not interested.' Discretion, Hermione believed quite strongly in this moment was the better part of valor. "'What do you think Rappaport wants from Britain?' Dimitri asked a while later, as they charted a tributary of the river they'd been following. Hermione looked up from his slate, then back down, as there was no one to look at. "'Excuse me? "'I understand the judges that Kakarov chose, "'and I know a little about Leichenberg, "'but politics isn't my area of expertise.' "'I know that there is a school called Silvermonia or something over there, "'but that's about it.' "'I don't know much about that either,' Hermione admitted. "'Caroline Rappaport is—' "'I think she's a member of something called the Unitarian Populist Party. "'But it might be the Popular Unitarian Party, actually. "'One spawned off the other. Don't ask me which. "'There have been a lot of Rappaports in councilships, according to what she'd read, "'but not always in the same party.' "'For a long time they really didn't trust muggle "'and Rapidball's party still doesn't. "'Back in the eighteenth century, "'Aristotle twelve-trees, "'he was the one that got me interested "'in the Atlantic and Commonwealth at all, actually,' "'a man, he explained, following a mental tangent. "'I was working on an essay about muggle "'when one of my books referred to the "'43rd Keeper of Treasure and Dragots. "'No name, just the title. "'The Keeper, for short. "'Was he particularly good in Quidditch?' Hermione could hear a smile in Demetrius' voice, but she didn't take the bait. His family violated the statute of secrecy in a particularly egregious way, so that the R.C.W. nearly intervened, and for generations afterward it was illegal even to be friends with the muggle. But the really interesting thing was that Emily Rappaport, who was one of the consuls at the time, which is why I know anything about them, inflicted a damnatio memoriae on his name. Part of that was a kind of taboo, so that the censors would know when somebody spoke his name anywhere in the Commonwealth, and the other part was a ban on so much as printing his name. Even foreign publishers who broke that ban would be forbidden to have any kind of dealings in sight. Hermione felt it before she saw it, felt cold, felt sad. Is she heard. A whisper on the wind. And then, before she could react, there were other voices. A murmurous sorceress. Madame Renoir, Anglaise, withdraw, Granger, you little goddamned! She gasped, nearly doubled over. Phantom pain dripped across her hand, and pain and horror rose up in her throat like hot bile. Her wand almost fell out of her grip, her legs almost buckled. Hermione was only dimly aware of Dmitri beside her, sobbing. Hermione had seen pictures before and read descriptions, but until now she had never been able to appreciate the physical reality of a Dementor, not just the sorrow and anguish of Dementation, the force of its presence, but its sheer size as well. Now one stood before her, an emaciated, cloaked giant, almost ten feet tall. Mystifyingly, a band of unicorns stood around it, gold and hornless, silver and acute, They stood, inscrutable and inexplicable, as if they were merely visions of another world. Another world, another world. Withdraw, Granger. Go back to Britain, Anglia. But there was no other world than this, and she could almost feel the pain, remember with such vividness as if she had been thrust back in time— Behind her eyes she could see Peregrine Derricks burning again, writhing beneath Haywood's wand. She could see her copy of A Wrinkle in Time, half its pages on the floor, while Honorine de la Husse carefully tore another from the binding. Mounted on the Dementor's head, wrapped over its face, was a tarnished silver frame, as though someone had given it a flat-topped birdcage for a helmet, and entangled in that frame was a gold chain from which hung a shining blue key." On the top left corner of its robe, a yellowed strip of parchment proclaimed the Dementor's name, Mr. Sable. Some part of Hermione struggled to believe what she was seeing, scrambling for any indication that she was dreaming or confunded, even while the rest of her struggled simply not to fall apart. Nobody will believe you. It, it is, is wrong that there lies, Miss Granger. Shut I'll up, you bellowing, bellowing foe. For a moment there was something else, a wisp of a counterthought, but only a wisp immediately blown away, replaced by a feeling of crushed fingers, a slap on the face, a malfunctioning autohexer against the inside of her wrist. The thing approached, and Hermione fell to her knees at last. Half heartedly, for that was all the heart that she had left, Hermione attempted to occlude her mind. Gorgo Blostro piece, Stephan, not derecomene. Perry. If the words were a wall, then the Dementor broke them down, disassembled her protections brick by bloody brick, dredging memories as though from the unlit bottom of a well. No, no, there was no activity on its part. The Dementor simply existed, and Hermione could do nothing as her own existence was reoriented around it, like a meteor caught in the pole of a dark star. There was nothing left for her but to descend. The dame must have. "'One of the unicorns stared at her, "'no more impressed than if she were a bush, "'then turned its head back to the Dementor, "'curious and unafraid. "'The Dementor turned its head, "'and Hermione followed its gaze to a space on her left. "'There was no decision about it on her part. "'The Dementor was the center of her world, "'and her gaze was pulled along as naturally "'as a ball rolls downhill.' She could almost see its attention, feel it, as Dmitri, invisible, continued to moan. I didn't mean to, to, to do it, Dmitri said. Not you, not you, my good. Like a girl, dear. Impassively, the Dementor stared as Dmitri wailed, his words falling out as though the Dementor had wrung his heart in its fist. <laughs> multe He wailed. Hermione understood nothing of the words, but she could feel the meaning behind them- despair, despair, despair. Her thoughts were dismal, her heart was sick. The sun itself seemed to shine less brightly through the trees, but there was space for another thought as well, Threnetic, frenetic, frenetic. Dmitri was suffering more, perhaps, than Hermione now suffered when all that was good and lively in the world seemed impossible to imagine, let alone to feel, that thought yet remained, because it was unhappy. It was an icicle spike through her eye, but it was a pain outside herself. She hurt no less, by Morgana she hurt more, but it was a hurt beyond her hurt. Hermione's wand had not slipped from her fingers, not yet, and her tongue had not turned to stone nor her throat closed up half as much as she merely felt it had. While the Dementor continued to stare where Dmitri knelt or lay, its whole being fixated as if it had been frozen there, Hermione spoke the incantation, moved her wand, and levitated a fallen branch. She had no hope of defeating the Dementor. She had no hope except that she might anger it, that she might distract it, perhaps give Dmitri the opportunity to run away. There was no hope for her, no hope in her except for that. She had come all this way to fail. Perhaps it was for that reason only that she could act. Her wand twitched, and the branch swung into the Dementor's head again and once more and again it struck, and the cage began to crumple beneath the force of her blows. Beside her, Dmitri said nothing, his cries cut short, and Hermione knew, better than she knew anything else in the whole world— that he had fallen unconscious that he had not fled could not flee not any more there was no hope at all not any more under her command the branch swung into its head again and this time the bars of its silver helmet broke again the hermione couldn't begin to answer why she did so and the cage was then busted so severely that it fell from the dementor's head uncovered now the dementor finally turns to her and she could at last see its scarred and rancid flesh, its empty sockets, and its sucking, toothless lamprey mouth. There was no hope at all. When she tried again to strike the Dementor, it raised a hand and gripped, then snapped the branch. The act seemed effortless, but Hermione herself could not make another effort at all, let alone one such as that, and collapsed to the ground. She fell forward, Thinking that at least she could buy a few more seconds before it turned her over, before it touched her. God, please don't let it touch her, let her die first. And when she felt its fetid fingertips upon her, she wrenched and shivered. There was no hope at all. Only one hand touched her. And when Hermione was flipped to her back, she saw why. From its other hand hung the golden chain and key, loosely wrapped around the palm and fingers. The Dementor pressed the index finger of its other hand against the first, then drew them both apart as its grip suddenly tightened around the chain, curled into a fist, and rose close to its shoulder. And then at last, the Dementor pressed the chain and its key into her right hand, rose like the moon, and set the broken cage back around its head before it drifted like an autumn leaf into the mist and the unicorns followed in its wake, beautiful and cold. Hermione had no sense of the time that passed between the moment that the Dementor left and the moment that she felt warm again, could bear to move and care to move, except that the forest had gotten ever so slightly darker by the time that she thought to notice it. Beside her, Dimitri had quieted, and he remained quiet as Hermione continued to lay there, bound, as if a stake had been thrust through her chest by what she experienced. Heartbreak, terror, misery beyond misery, wretched, scabrous hands that moved and twisted in the air as if they meant to communicate something. Unicorns and a thought, a terrible thought, That they were innocents and had the callousness of innocence. And there was a new thing in the world, and they were interested in it and nothing more. Children could pull the wings off a fly in idle curiosity. Such was the cruelty of innocence. When Hermione pulled herself from the forest floor, it was darker still. Dimitri, she whispered. I am here, he replied numbly. "'Are you okay?' she asked, suppressing the impulse to reach out to him, to the person that was not supposed to be present, could not be suspected to be present. "'I killed him,' Dmitri said, so softly that the confession was almost inaudible. "'I don't understand.' The Dementor was still alive, and Hermione couldn't imagine who else Dmitri might be describing— He'd had nothing to do with that. The Death Eater. I thought... I thought that it was Riddle himself. I'd watched them so long, even when they thought themselves alone. I thought that I knew how to tell the difference. When Hermione replied, she tried to keep her voice steady. Why are you telling me now? Because I don't want to lie to you. He said, and then, because I cannot be the only one to know. I cannot bear it, and Victor is not here to know it with me. Instantly, Hermione thought back to Dmitri's reaction to the corpse, to the argument she'd witnessed between Victor and Dmitri, to Dmitri's insistence that Karkaroff had only murdered Murtvago. Why, Dmitri? "'The zeroth rule of occlumency,' he reminded her. "'Dimitri, you have to tell me something. "'I'm in the middle of the forest with the murderer. "'You have to tell me something. "'I don't want to—' "'Could she throw Dimitri into the Dementor again? "'Send him to Azkaban to dwell with them forever? "'They were monsters. "'They were an atrocity. "'But Dimitri was a murderer. "'Tell me something,' she begged. "'My father—' Dimitri said. I just wanted to save my father, Hermione, he said. And though he said nothing more, Hermione thought that it was enough to understand. Maybe his father had been left behind, imprisoned, or simply unable to flee, and now he was trapped in Britain. Or maybe he had escaped, but was more than just a refugee like Professor McGonagall was still being searched for. Or maybe— there were many possibilities, but Hermione understood that they all meant the same thing. Did your father... Did he send you to do this? No. Hermione hadn't thought so. She knew intellectually that there were fathers that could turn their sons into weapons, but if she had known only one Dmitri this whole time, if that Dimitri were this one, then she knew him somewhat... And she did not think that such a father could create such a son. Maybe she was naive. There was more to the world than what was in her books. But it wasn't something that she could resolve with any more certainty than she already had, not now. We'll talk about it later, she decided, speaking to herself as much as to Dmitri. I don't know what we'll do later, but this isn't the place for an inquisition, and I can. I can trust you for now till we're out of the forest. More than anything, Hermione tried to remember that Dimitri regretted what he had done. When the Dementor fed upon him, it had brought forth the memory of that act, and nothing else. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Salticide. The music is Amon Ra by Dayswitch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.